Hello and welcome, I'm Peter White. Today we have a special show all about The Big Breakfast. The Channel 4 show launched 25 years ago this week, so we've decided to bring together the people responsible. We're going to discuss how a company that makes a chaotic Friday night entertainment show came to make two hours of live breakfast telly every morning. We look at the production process, talk about the talent that sprang from the show, and also explore its influence on British TV. That's all coming up on this special edition of Talking TV from Broadcast. Joining me at Maple Street Studios are Charlie Parsons, Lisa Clark, Duncan Gray and Paul Sandler. Hello guys. Hello. Hello. It feels like we're just back 25 years ago, Duncan, does it? It does. Can we believe it was 25 years ago? It does seem incredible, doesn't it? 25 years ago is a long time. Uh, before we get into it, before we kick off, um, we are just going to take a trip down memory lane. <laughs> We're still practicing, Gabor. Is this no, it? No, this is it. Oh is my word! I can't thing. believe it. It's the big breakfast here on Channel Four Live at seven o'clock in the morning on Monday, September uh, 28, 1992. I'm Chris, and I'm Gabby. Okay, actually, I wish I was Richard. I wish I was you. Do but we're not. Chris we're going to. We will be in 12 months' time, maybe, if we're lucky. Uh, coming up on today's show, pack, 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 big, big show. Uh, Bob Geldof meets the Australian Prime Minister, and we've got the late uh, Heritage Minister Brian Gould with a super, super hint. Paula Yates is uh, chatting to uh, Jana Lumley in a boudoir. And the Princess of Wales is in Snap, Cackle and Pop. We have the return of the banana splits to British Hello. television. It's early 1992. Uh, set the scene for us, Charlie. I was running a company called 24 Hour Productions with my partner, uh, Wahid Ali, and we'd just had two very successful series of The Word. So we felt we were sort of very in with Channel 4, and Andrea Wanfer, who's the commissioning editor of Entertainment at Channel 4, told us that we ought to be pitching for this new tender they were putting out to replace the Channel 4 Daily, which was the current offering they had on in the mornings between 6 and 9 o'clock. And she said, why don't you get together with Bob Geldof, because he's got a company. So Wade and I sort of thought about it and thought, this would be an amazing thing to pull off, so let's try and pitch for it. And the scene started from there. We basically started to work immediately on, on our presentation and our possible amalgamation with Bob's company. So you're making this anarchic Friday night show, and then you decide to get into morning telly. They're very different beasts, but so what were you thinking that you could do in the, in the morning TV space? Well, at that stage, I guess we were both pretty arrogant and believed in our own abilities, and we felt that we'd already transformed the late-night landscape with The Word, which had literally brought audiences where there hadn't been an audience before, and we thought, well, why don't we try and do the same? And from a quite a low base, it should be said, because, you know, the Channel 4 Daily for was quite a boring programme to watch and meant, was meant to be. I think where Andrea was coming from was she wanted an entertaining programme in the morning. It was quite a break because worldwide, breakfast TV was still relatively new and it existed only in the form of hard news or pastel-coloured sofas. I went to a Royal Television Society seminar at the Groucho Club around that time where they actually said, oh, that there was um, lots of Americans and experts and consultants, and they all said, oh, there's only one kind of morning television, really. Oh, sorry, there's two, which is news or the pastel sofa thing. So I knew at that stage, if we could get the idea right, we were on to a winner. But crucially, we were looking, I suppose, at an opportunity which was 
Andrea had said that we might be in for a chance. It in no way ticked any of the normal boxes of the production companies at that time because we weren't that established. And we thought, well, let's try and go for it. I gathered the pitch you sent to Taster Tape in a comedy cornflakes box. Well, I mean, long before that, I'd employed Duncan Gray. I think it was his first job in TV. It was to work and develop on this pitch. And I mean, the actual process of the pitch before we got to the cornflakes packet, which indeed we did submit, we planned it like a military strategy from beginning to end. We you know, did a huge, for instance, a huge amount of research into the habits of the British people. We, Duncan was sent off to libraries to look for, you know, the, you know what people did at 7.15 in the morning. So we literally worked against that in creating a minute-by-minute minute account of what the programme should be. Duncan had suggested Chris Evans and this programme, I think. You know, we, we started working very closely together to put together a really detailed document which went through all of the elements of the programme and what it should be. And in that process, enlisted various people along the way. Mm -hmm. For instance, we got ITN. Um, we got this guy now a, a bigwig, Chris Shaw at ITN, to help us with the developer news, which was unlike any news programme which had been on TV before, because we wanted it to be like a Radio 1 news rather than a TV news. We got involved with Bob Geldof, and through Bob Geldof we enabled two aspects of our pitch to come in, one of which was an interview with world leaders, which Bob did, and the other was the complete other end of the spectrum, which was Paula Yates interviewing celebrities. So we started to put together a, a detailed programme concept. So who's on the team at this point? Um, you've got the word is going, and, and there were some people that, at Planet working on that, but who's, uh, you know, Duncan, Duncan, you're on that team. Who else is around the breakfast at this point? I was very lucky I got to work with Charlie directly on the pitch. I think the secret to understanding The Big Breakfast was it was a radio show on the television, essentially. All I'd wanted to do was be a Radio 1 producer since I'd first started working with Chris at GLR until I met Charlie, and Charlie very kindly offered me a job. All I wanted to do was be a researcher on The Word, and I couldn't get a job as a researcher on The Word, so Charlie very kindly gave me a job as a development researcher, and he came bounding out of his office and said, Guess what? Channel 4 want a new breakfast show. And my eyes just went, Oh, God. I didn't get into television to do breakfast television. I wanted to do late-night sexy television. But I listened to Simon Mayo's breakfast show every morning, and then I spent a lot of time in New York listening to zoo format radio shows. And it wasn't conscious. It just wrote itself. In terms of the going back to the, the tape, you, you know, you've got the pitch process together. Were you responsible for, I gather, Paula Yates was hoovering to I Want to Break Free? Just, just to quickly sort of take you through yeah. the timetable. So Channel 4 suddenly decided this probably in about March of 1992, and said they wanted a new programme in September. I yeah. mean, they clearly hadn't thought it through, really. They put it out to loads of companies, but they clearly prioritised the big ones. A bit later, perhaps in about April, they said, OK, well, we've got a, a short list, which is down to just four. We were the only one who, were doing it, who was doing it on our own. The other three were all combinations. And then they narrowed it down to two, and then that's you and Central, uh, and us and Central. And the reason they did that was the cornflake packet and the things which went in it. And indeed, that's absolutely correct. There was Paula hoovering along to "I Want mm. to Break Free," amongst other things. I think we may have done a little bit of an interview with Bob and Gaddafi. Um, <laughs> you know, next to it, cut interestingly next to it. Yes, you know, it was a kind of word-flavored breakfast interview, if that makes any sense. 
I mean, we really, really worked on the detail of this. So, you know, the cornflakes packet, which was filled with all of the sort of terrible breakfast puns that became in the pro- part of the programme's identity, also had in it a very detailed analysis of what we felt every hour should be. Actually, nearly all of which remained when we actually went on air. From the other side of the wall, the stories that were coming back was that the powers that be at Channel 4 were completely shocked and appalled by this non-newsy, non-pastel-coloured offering. And it was Andrea who kept retrieving it from the reject pile (laughs) and sneaking it back into the maybe pile. And that kept going all the way down to the final two. Dubious, according to Michael Atwell. Is that what he said? Dubious. I mean, the the politics at Channel 4 were that Channel 4 Daily had been the news and factual department and Andrea was basically pitching for the entertainment department to take it over. It's a big slug of TV and obviously the news and factual department didn't want anything to do with us because we weren't their people. That manifested itself a lot later when we had it after we'd been commissioned, when we had a big battle about what the news should consist of because it was always my contention that we should be in charge of the news and not ITN or Channel 4. The commissioning editor for the news at that time really was not happy with that and in the end I think Michael Grade had to step in and say let them do it. So you've won the opportunity to make this pilot this is now you having to go out and and show them what you're worth. Yeah well in kind of as I say incredibly we won the opportunity to make the pilot we thought oh my goodness well we've got to recruit a team basically and fortunately we knew a lot of good people because of the word but the crucial things is we had to keep our eye on the fact that if in the amazing situation we were to win the programme, we had an incredibly and ludicrously short time to actually get it on air. So this, for instance, showed itself in finding the Big Breakfast House. I mean, we took options on three or four places, which we Mm. would have to apply for planning permission. If you think about it, that was a very short period between May and September. So we had to basically look, use the money that they gave us for our two pilots to stretch to all the research and uh, legal stuff in relation to a long-term project. And indeed, another clever thing we did was we did four pilots, not two, because we wanted our own pilot before they saw it. So this is the house in Forest Hill, is that right? No, so the pilot was in the, in a temporary house in Forest Hill. Mm, that's right. And you were responsible for having to put some of this together, you you know, in terms of the physical, practical, putting, yes. putting together this house. Yes, I mean, for the pilot, it was relatively straightforward compared to what was to come in that it was an outside broadcast. So you hired pretty much everything. We were only in there for two or three days. We were making, we were having four run-throughs, four pilots. And so it was all fairly straightforward. The real challenges <coughs> lay around the corner. Little did I know. It was a big outside <coughs> broadcast. It was huge. I don't know really, who we really, rented the house from, but we rented it from some family or something, yeah, didn't we? from a normal, a normal family, you know, who were looking to do a holiday letter. <laughs> I mean, it was rather bizarre. It's you going on Airbnb these days. In that pilot, you've got Chris involved. I gather that the co-host wasn't necessarily well, signed up. The crucial thing about the pilot was we knew that the pilot was going to be shown alongside the other one in the studio at Channel 4. There was going to be one monitor monitor at one end and one at another end and the central pilot was going to be shown at one end and ours was going to be shown at another so we knew it was an on-air pilot we thought of it as we'd signed up for our pilot Emma Forbes and a little thing happened which was basically she came in to do some voiceovers and unfortunately the person who was supervising the voiceover was probably quite tired because we really work people <laughs> hard and she'd basically done a voiceover which was much more word than it was Big Breakfast. Emma 
was obviously a little bit concerned when she did this voiceover, which was the thing. And later at night, just the night before the first pilot we were doing, Brian Forbes said, look, called Julia, who he knew, and said, I'm sorry, I don't think Emma wants to do it, and so she's not going to turn up tomorrow. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, no. I looked around the empty office. There was Duncan there. We had somebody else working on development on a music programme, Danielle Lux. But I remembered that Danielle Lux had presented something on Deaf 2. She was working on this very, very serious music programme, a sort of 10-part documentary about the history of music. <laughs> Obviously very wrapped up in writing sort of a whole thing about song lines and stuff. I said, Danielle, look, can you help us out? I know you've presented some stuff, haven't you? Blah, blah, blah. I just happen to have this clipboard here. We're doing this pilot. Of course, everybody knew we were doing this pilot tomorrow morning. Could you come in at 4am and basically just be the co-host with Chris. <laughs> Amazingly, she did it. And she did an amazing job. She's I mean, fantastic. she did an amazing job. She was great. And there was a great groundswell of support for mm. her to be the host until she was the sensible one and said, come off it, guys. <laughs> really. So we she could have had Danny Lux, the, the yeah. TV star, rather than the, uh, the production. Uh, it was incredible. I mean, it was an incredible. It was incredible how it was kind of all came together. Honestly, it was Duncan out there and Dan. And that was it, basically. It was a sort of dark office about nine in the evening. If Danielle had gone home early, <laughs> Duncan could be an on-screen <laughs> presenter today. I don't think the big breakfast would have ever been commissioned <laughs> in that case. The real nub of it was it was a joke about Andy Peters that Emma objected to. <laughs> was it? <laughs> Her on-screen presenting partner on Saturday morning. So someone had made a, a gag that she didn't quite, uh, quite get along with. So take us from... You've got this, and apparently okay. uh, the rumour goes in Channel 4 that 90% uh, of the staff were watching the uh, central pilot because they all assumed that was the one that was going to be They started made. watching they that. They started watching that, and then during the course of the this pilot, they uh, kept moving over and yeah. ended up, by the end of it, most of them watching yeah. The Breakfast. So how quickly after that did you get a yes? And then I guess So I then basically started the whole process of building a team, closing on the option on the on the place you know, making what we'd done in the pilot something which we could do five days a week. Uh, when did you find what turned out to be Lockkeeper's Cottage? Well, we'd found it during the process yeah. before the pre-pilot. So we had an option on three different properties, and I was begging Charlie to go with either of the other two, because Lockkeeper's Cottages was surrounded on two sides by a rather hostile, privately-owned industrial estate, and on two sides by water. <laughs> and I was obviously charged with turning this thing into a TV studio in the days before when nothing was small and everything was enormous. And so I could drive a second-hand OB truck up to the front door of the other two locations. I certainly couldn't do that with Lockkeeper's Cottages, which is, of course, needless to say, where we ended up. We ended up buying a second-hand OB truck that was about 22 years old from the BBC and then coming to terms with how we were going to get it into the garden of the Lockkeeper's Cottages, which was actually about 15 feet lower than the surrounding industrial estate. We talked to the army about building a pontoon bridge to see if we could get it over the canal, but the wheelbase was too long. We talked to the Air Force about lifting it with helicopters, but it was too heavy. And eventually we talked to the industrial estate. Unfortunately, the bit of car park by the garden, or 15 feet above the garden, was, was placed exactly over London's main water main, which is this 20-foot wide pipe with millions of gallons of water flowing through it that was only about four feet below the surface. So the idea of putting a crane <laughs> on top of that to lift an OB truck that we were told weighed 16 tonnes over a wall and drop it 15 feet lower than it started wasn't filling the landlords with a great deal of, of anticip you know, anticipatory joy. But we did eventually 
persuade them. We had to lay vast amounts of metal on the ground to try and spread the weight. We got a 22-tonne crane. The BBC assured us this thing weighed 16 tonnes. We eventually lifted it, and when it was about a foot off the ground, every single alarm and light on the crane started flashing and ringing as the driver stuck his head out and went, it's off the scale, it's at least 24 tonnes, I've got to put it down. And I was going, fine, but put it down over there. And that was genuinely, you know, looking back over all these years, that was the most stressful four minutes of my entire life. But you'd actually had terrible nightmares the night before. Yeah. I remember you yeah. saying you'd basically been waking up all, you know, over and over again. Convinced was- that the, tra- the crane would tip over or it would drop through the, into, the, into the pipe or it would drop the thing from a great height or whatever. But eventually... But you got it in. We got it in. And then, uh, and then the easy job of dropping in four porter cabins, which weighed nothing, uh, and bolting <laughs> them together and, um, <laughs> uh, and putting it all together. Now, a really clever, nothing to do with me, the design, but a really clever, intricate way that allowed us to get an entire production gallery and sound and dressing rooms and a production office into this tiny, tiny space. So you've got this point, you've won the show, and then you've got to be on air in September. Presumably, yep. that the, there's a lot to do in a very short space of time. So presumably, you're adding more people to the team. Talk us through that period before well, so, the show yeah, goes. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, we had to, given Danielle wasn't going to do it, we had to find the person who was going to do it. And we had a whole audition process going for that. I think you were involved yes. in that quite a yeah. lot. Yeah. We had to completely convince people about this show because there was a, quite a lot of stuff saying, oh, well, it'll never work and all of that kind of thing. And I can remember getting Ed Fosdick in the car park. We were Our offices were at 45 Mill Harbour. They were sort of rain-leaky old office from the first phase of Docklands. And we knew we had to move offices because we were going to expand from a sort of team of about 20 to about 150. I interviewed and talked to Ed about him doing the Down Your Doorstep section, which was the daily section which we were going to take Mark Lamar out on the road. And, not, and I remember showing him this satellite truck which was kind of an early, basically I think it had been cobbled together from various bits and pieces which had been in somebody's home but it was going to work on the road and take take him round and kind of convincing him about this thing which he was going to get involved with for the next nine years it was sort of so new the idea that you really had to convince the people to come along but they did because it was kind of also felt quite exciting and Lisa, when did you come on board this? You were down on the first episode credits as a producer. Mm. What's your sort of journey into the, the Big Breakfast? Well, Charlie employed me on Network 7 as an on-screen reporter. Very, very good, wasn't I, Charlie? Mm. I was a dreadful on-screen reporter. <laughs> but uh, he'd employed me on that, and I did stick with that. Then I just remember him calling me and saying he was doing this, this new show. I think I'd been working with Ruby Wax since Network 7, I think. So mostly entertainment stuff. And I, I don't know why he gave me Mondays to do, but he did, which I thought was fine. <laughs> Little Worst did day I of the know. Week, actually. Dreadful, because it meant you had to work all weekend and all week. She had no other days off, so it was, it was quite a job. But um, I was thinking about it today, and I don't remember any kind of, not real nerves, it was more excitement, because it was a really good team. We all got on well. There was no, I don't know, there was just a great feeling of anticipation and. Yeah, a bit of stress, but not not stress like I've known since. It was it was great. We had everything prepared for this first Monday. How long show. before that first show were you involved? Probably two months, maybe. Yeah. And there was a template, as Charlie said. You know, there was a template of what you had to do. And there was a little row of desks of us as Monday researcher producer, Tuesday researcher producer, Wednesday Thursday. And we all sat in a row, which was great and good fun. Yeah, then you just sort of were just finding items to fill. There was there was there was slots. Obviously, the zig and zag slot was there, and you had the news slot, and you had the down your doorstep 
slot and you had the, you know, so everything was there. So you knew your sections. Of course, it's two hours live. I mean, masses of logistical problems and all, even just team structure problems. There was no mm. template to look at. So we were thinking, well, is it, is it one, is it a producer per day or is it a producer per week mm. uh, with a massive team of researchers or do you make every slot item independent so one person does snap, cackle and pop all mm. week forever, you know. And uh, in the end, you know, we came up with something quite unique at the time of course and it, it worked very well which and, has know, been followed the- since I was talking to someone this week and they said light lunch followed exactly that that pattern of how we'd set things up and I think a lot of people do and alongside this anyway so we were doing the structure part but we were also looking for the bits of the programme so Duncan was actually looking for the who should be the presenter you went mm. through loads of people so you'd worked with Chris on on a previous radio show yes it was a nightly pop show at GLR at 7.30. It wasn't the Saturday morning show that he did with Carol McGiffin. It was anarchic, and it wasn't entirely dissimilar in spirit and tone. To so was he always in mind to, to front this? Listen, I was 24. It was my first job in television. I just said to Charlie, there's this guy called Chris Evans on the radio. He was quite clearly going to be a star, and a lot of other companies were turned on to him, and there was a bit of tug-of-war beforehand about who had him on their pitch. I think at the time he was head and shoulders the number one candidate. As is the case often, there were lots of people talking about Chris Evans at the time because he, you know, made this impression. But there were other people too, and we certainly went in with it with the idea that it could be anyone. You know, at that stage, obviously, I didn't know Chris very well, and I, when I got him in and told him about the programme, and frankly, the only adjective I could use to describe it is I said, it's going to be brilliant, and that seemed to be enough to sign him, which was pretty good. And Chris, with his sort of producer's thing on, was an amazing person to have because he added an extra bit to every script, which made it funny. You know, he, he knew the words, he knew how to... Pre- you know, I remember one of the competitions was sort of, whose line is it anyway, which is a washing machine quiz show washing line quiz show and he sort of said oh, I know I'm going to do the phone thing on a banana I mean he'd just add mm. he has has and had a magic touch which basically did it and back in those fun days it was so fresh and uh, original and then once Danny decided that she wasn't going to be the uh, the on-screen uh, talent <laughs> yeah. um, how did Gabby come along there I know Chris you know more recently or later called her the queen of the whole thing you know where did she turn up into this process we auditioned literally hundreds of people and Gabby just kept coming back and kept sticking in your memory in particular Charlie I just went down to the house and recorded what what was actually I mean the reason I think in the end we went for her was she was the best person with kids I mean it was it was a strange thing because one of the tasks I think they had to do was to sort of interview some kid about something and she she was just better you know she had a natural a lot of presenters are great at presenting but it's you know given that the the house itself was you know we had our family of the week we had people in there we had stories of people who would come in and tell us their things we wanted somebody who could really relate to people and she was brilliant at that and her greatest skill was not stepping on chris or never competing yes. with chris and therefore chris accepted her Chris hadn't really worked in a duo before. The times he had, it hadn't worked out. And she complimented him superbly. Mm. How important was yeah, that dynamic? Seems like that was key to the early, early success. Definitely. I mean, it was the, the linchpins of what was going on. And, you know, all the presenters were great. But Lisa said behind the screens, we all got on very well. But in front of the screens, they all got on very well too. And it, and it showed, you know, if there was one sort of number one slogan we wanted in the morning, we, it was kind of, when you start your day, you feel cheerful. And 
you do because everybody in the house feel you know it might be a dreary Monday out there mm. but it's a funny or fun what's going on in the but house. also interestingly none of the crew, all the crew being involved and stuff that that happened organically didn't it it wasn't forced it wasn't I think that came across it, it people did get a name for themselves was it maybe a floor manager or a sound person or something and that was absolutely not contrived it just happened because no, of the way Chris and Gabby was were with them and that contributed to it as well because oh everyone in the house yeah, was having fun yeah it absolutely was I mean if you you know I caught that the, wasn't normal I was looking then, at was the it? first episode again what was really striking actually was that the crew weren't really involved much in no. the first I mean you know there were a couple of bits you heard them in the background but they really weren't and yeah. that happened organically yeah. rather than us saying this is Zoo we only dubbed it Zoo TV quite a lot later when it yeah. had become that at the beginning it was really about yeah. content although there was still an intention I think because I remember going to one of the prep meetings and there was still the intent to refer to to be very open about the fact that this is yeah. a television programme yeah. we're making mm. and look all these people are in the room with us yeah. making this television programme which was quite revolutionary then you know it was still very much you, I mean, know, you, it, don't, it, you don't break the fourth wall and mm. it, it only took it's the power of imitation. It was, I think, four or five weeks from the first episode being on air to that Imperial Leather advert with Paul Merton, where they go into a bathroom and the cameraman's hand appears and wipes the mist off the front of the camera, right, which right, was a right, shot right, right, right. straight off the Big Breakfast <laughs> yeah. OB. And talk about some of the bits. I mean, you mentioned some of their de- down on your doorstep, meet the family, dish the dirt, whose washing line is it? Anyway, how many of them were come up with in advance? How many of them were sort of things that, you know, you were just sort of coming up with? It was a constantly evolving thing. I mean, we had most of them. We added to them a lot. You had the brilliant idea of the house. I think Bob came up with the name The Big Breakfast. So from day one, it was always going to be in a house. And all of those strands had been developed by myself, a guy called Martin Cunningham Charlie. And the running order that we submitted to Channel 4 when the process was at its largest, before it had been whittled down to four, was the running order that we went on air with apart from the fact that Channel 4, with three weeks to go, turned around and said, oh, we want it to run till 9 o'clock. Oh, yes, so we had when to... When was it originally meant to run? 8.45. 8.45. Uh, whose washing line is it anyway was in the original pitch document. Zig and Zag were in the original pitch document. Yeah, what's, the, sto- what's the story there with the Zig and Zag? Well, I mean, Zig and Zag basically came about because Murray said, oh, you know, you ought to see these guys who are big in, in Ireland, RTE, and I went over to Dublin and met them they were just funny you and the tapes that we saw were funny so we'd been looking for something which was a bit different i suppose my first job in tv was on the six o'clock show as a researcher and the series editor there was greg dyke and he'd introduced roland rat to tvam so i thought oh well we need our own sort of more quirky anarchic stranger more modern version of that and what we loved about zig and zag which has become much more of a modern meme is that it appealed on two levels, one to kids who saw them just as puppets and one to adults because they were pretty damn naughty. They obviously became a very important feature of the house. Yeah, yeah. Talk us through a, a week in that process. You talked about how the staff, and, and Lisa, it sounds like you were the Monday uh, Monday producer. Talk us through, just in terms of that you know, production process for, for you, how crazy was that? It was crazy, it was full on, but um, if you broke everything down, because if you looked at two hours, you'd probably go a bit mad, so you just broke it down, you'd decide, okay, what's our of-the-moment interview going to be, what's going to be the feature, there was always, there 
that evolved actually we had a feature so that would be about a six minute item I think in the middle of the show I always did cars or helicopters or dogs usually we usually try and get that into place because that would be the kind of thing to trail you'd usually do it about five past ten past eight and it's funny because sometimes you think I would get so organized so by a Tuesday or maybe a Wednesday morning you think I'm so sorted we won't be staying late you know we won't have to sleep overnight I don't know there was just always so much to do there was a lot of script a lot of running order a lot of different you'd have to get the other teams to feed in their items put those in your script I, I remember driving to the house on the first Monday morning I, we'd seen the preview of the papers and the front page of the sun was that Paulie Yates didn't have a TV licence even though she was going to present the big breakfast that's got to be I Chris Tyker's uh, uh, legacy there uh, hasn't it no I think who knows I don't know we I don't, don't know, know. We don't I don't actually, know. it wasn't a planted story I don't know if it was but it was a brilliant story I mean, yeah, it, was, it, was, it was front page so Chris I ran it up and, on, you see, and, the yeah, yeah. and the interesting thing was that there was a that Channel 4 were a bit alarmed about this. They rung up in a kind of, oh my God, have you seen the front page? We were like, brilliant, what, you know, can't get better advertising. I got in my car, <laughs> drove home to get my TV licence, um, photocopied it and gave a TV licence to the whole crew. That's I actually what got everyone's st- waving on the first right. episode. And I got stopped by the police, driving back, my flat was in central London, and I was driving to the house, and they, I was pulled over, and I said, look, mate, you know, I'm, pr- I'm producing the big breakfast in the morning, and he was like, oh, well, good luck, on you go, and let me off here. And <laughs> Why so, were you speeding? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I had about half an hour to run home, find my TV license, get sort of fifty photocopies, and then distribute it to the thing, and then sit down in the truck and produce the show. But that, actually, I think that encapsulates lots of, of the spirit, and that's the spirit that that Charlie set about. It wasn't that's what I was saying earlier about it being kind of an open forum. If you had an idea, if you had an idea at five to eight or five to seven or whenever it was, you had the ability to go and do it. And that's why I think you, even though you had your running order, if you wanted to, you could muck around with it, which was which was fantastic. Is it a sort of sink or swim? culture you look at the names of people and you know i know we talked about this when we did the word piece back in um, a couple of years ago the people that came out of the the breakfast you know they're all running production yeah. companies now got guys that were researchers there that are writing you know marvel movies and yeah. you know <laughs> yeah. big american production companies was there something about what was going on there that thought well if you can cut it here actually you might go on and, i think and so successful. i absolutely think so it's proper hard work it was rewarding hard work but proper hard work and i think that I still come across so many people that had that training ground of the Big Breakfast and there's not a lot of places like that now because we were nurtured, we were encouraged. The other thing is, which is, you know, absent in some ways from the creativity structure now was that as a production company and therefore from me downwards, people were given the opportunity to fail. They were, you know, yeah. they were given an incredible amount of, you know, yeah. opportunity to come up with amazing things yeah. and they were given the opportunity to fail and sometimes it did. But mostly it didn't because, you know, they were good people with great ideas and they weren't, we didn't have the staff, you know, it was a tiny budget we were given. Mm. Two people producing a mm. two hour show. There wasn't the time to go over every line of the script and say it doesn't work. Nowadays, that would almost be inconceivable. Yeah, it would be sanitised, I think, and it wasn't. Do you remember that dog? Does anyone remember the dog I had on? It was my big piece. It was a dog that could, I think he could play Mario Kart or something. Oh, yes. I remember Chris saying to me, sure it can? I said, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen it? I said, yeah, I don't think I had it. <laughs> so it's live, and this dog comes on. Of course it doesn't do anything. So what did I do? I literally hid behind a sofa, because I knew I was going to get told off really badly, so I just hid. And I could see Chris scanning, looking at me, so he could roast me. I was like, oh, dear. But so you say mis- mistakes do happen. I've never booked a dog that says he can play Mario Kart So... We all learn. <laughs> how much of, uh, when you got the commission initially, how long did you get? Oh, season? how long was the first? I think it was 13 months. Or 15, 15 it months. September yeah. through, it was through to 31st December the following year. Yes. 10 grand an ep? 
It was 10 grand an app, yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, I think they increased it halfway through because they realised it was almost impossible. But it was something like that. I mean, does that ring a bell? That I have to get my calculator. It was either 10 grand an app or 10 grand an hour. <laughs> but I think it was 10 grand an app. It launched on yeah. the 28th of September. And even in that first week, those ratings started to double yeah. what Channel 4 Daily was yeah. doing and, and it was growing. So it, presumably morale's good, everything's going well. Talk us through that sort of period now. It's it's a hit. Well, it's a hit. It meant that we, you know, from a production company point of view, from the Planet 24 point of view, it gave us a degree of stability. You know, it's a, it's a great thing if you're a production company to have something which it, you're committed to. It meant that in terms of our organisation, we could actually give people a variety in what they worked on so that they could work on other programs that we were developing or the word which was still on it meant the office actual office structure we could move from a leaky building to a less leaky building <laughs> you know obviously it meant that at the same time i suppose there was a certain amount of corporate envy from other companies who basically either wanted to poach our best people or didn't really like what we were doing because they were a bit jealous but also you know, it was easier to book people by then as well being absolutely it was a it was, nice. it was an interesting thing in terms of the guests because people wanted to be on yeah. the program they knew they'd have fun and even down to you know ordinary ordinary people mm. who wanted to be the family of the week you know we sort of suddenly if we were starting this a show now we'd have this amazing database of people we wanted to do i mean i think our big problem was because we were working on such a shoestring in some ways we couldn't take opportunity and advantage of all the things that came out of it i mean was I think our collective belief that loads of the things in the show could have been shows in their own right. Well, I was going to say, Duncan, you know, we were talking about some of those bits down on your doorstep or uh, some of those bits from the thing. Would there now be six-part commissions on uh, Channel 4 Primetime, wouldn't they? Well, I, I, I know Peter Bazalgett used to sit at home and, and watch and just pick off item after item. I mean, the People Report, which was revolutionary at the time, Charlie had discovered that Ofcom had just approved handheld VHS cameras, which meant which sounds bizarre in today's uh, landscape, but back then you couldn't use a self-directed VHS camera to transmit because it was against broadcast regulations. And Charlie had discovered that you just could now send people out with a camera. And I always remember for the pilot, I was tasked with doing the people report. And Charlie said, I had no idea what to do. And Charlie had grown up in local journalism, said, do a story about dog shit. Go to the local park <laughs> and find somebody who gets really upset about dog shit being on being in the park. And it was the best people report we ever did. Yeah. And, and to this day, even now, if I want to do an item that gets people really cross, we do an item about dog shit. But, but if you think about it, Me and My Holiday, which ended up being a long-running series on Channel 4 15 months later, was the people report. Mm. But Charlie's quite right. We were all working so bloody hard yeah, with breakfast. Yeah. We couldn't look at the assets we had to exploit them in the schedule. Wrapping up soon, um, just in terms of you've all had different, slightly different experiences on this, I guess if I go round and, you know, the, the one story that stands out, what was the one, you know, was there a moment, was there something daft, was there sort of something that happened on the show that, that you know, that really sticks out now 25 years later? It has to be lovely Paula Yates, actually, because she was a force to be reckoned with and we, sometime about two years after we'd been on air, we set up a panel on a Monday or a Wednesday, I can't remember, and it was the expert panel. And there was this, one week it was the shark expert panel, and there was these these experts in sharks, we're all sitting, there's about five of them in a row, and they're really, really excited and really happy to be there. They said, oh, where's Paula? When can we meet Paula? Paula came in in not the best of moods that day, because she wasn't a morning person. She came running down the stairs, said to these people, um, 
And, and who are you? And they said, oh, well, we're, we're the shark expert panel. And she said, well, you can all F off as well. <laughs> and just walked off and they all just went, oh. <laughs> and it just, it was just a really, it was, it just encapsulated a lot of what it was about. It was just chaos in the house and lots of excited people and different personalities. Yeah, yeah. When you got your film start in a junket in a hotel room and everybody piled in and had 15 minutes with them, we used to book another room down the corridor and rebuild uh, the boudoir with the bed and oh, we had a portable yeah. backdrop for the oh, bed so and the, a portable the bed. Paula interviews so the didn't Paula always interviews happen when, in the house no they were often you'd suddenly you'd walk into whoever it was you know not George Clooney then but whoever yeah. and go uh, right we're ready for our 15 minutes but would you mind just <laughs> coming into the room next door please and he Wonder Wall Street. So, what which ones? On. Anything? Any of the famous ones were? Could you remember Charles Charles Defoe? Ones, but the very big names. That <coughs> yeah, it was that, that happened later. That was a strategy that happened. Yeah, maybe a couple of years <coughs> down the line. Duncan, what's uh, what's the thing that stands out for you? It was later on, actually. Vanessa Feltz poured a plate of beans over me when <laughs> I, I was the that. executive producer. We'd relaunched the show with Johnny and Denise, and Vanessa was surplus to requirements. She wasn't very happy. Did you um, deserve it? I don't think I did, did, but I I, I dealt with it in a very grown-up way. I went back to the office and wrote everybody a memo. But on a personal (laughs) note, what I really remember more than anything was the second Tuesday, I was Friday's researcher, and I was going to work on the Tube, and people on the Tube were talking about the thing Mm. that I was involved in. And I always remember, and it was like a rumbling thunder those first six weeks. It just was growing louder and louder and louder and louder. It took me a long time to figure out why I work in television, but I reconnected to that memory, is hearing people talk about what you do and seeing an impact like that. It was an incredible thing to be involved with, and it it doesn't happen very often, and and that's the memory I always remember. Can you pick one, Charlie? I appreciate that. Well, I think, I mean, it's so hard to pick one, but... I mean, I honestly think almost everybody on the team was pretty amazing and would always come up with solutions to incredibly difficult problems and we did a special show for the millennium and um, we had Zsa Zsa Gabor on uh, but we also Ed, Ed Fosdick was the executive producer and he had a because it was the millennium 2000 there was a prize of 2000 one pound coins which was going to be given away that day anyway Zsa Zsa Gabor's manage, management basically wanted their money in cash <laughs> So, so um, I don't know if it was Ed or Wahid who came up with the solution, very simple solution of the, the main part of that money, because obviously all the banks were closed, being paid in coins rather than in, you know, actually through the bank account. Did she have to go out of the wheelbarrow? <laughs> yeah, so she carried the two back. It was on air, nine years, six months and one day. You know, we've obviously start, been talking about largely the beginning of this, but towards the end of that, how did you, you know, was it sadness when it ended? What, what, how did you feel as, as it as it Well, I, I think actually it ended pretty bitterly, if I'm honest. I mean, w- you know, what happens in broadcasting organisations is every new incumbent has to make their mark, and that means that sometimes programmes which are quite successful aren't don't actually, you know, make it, especially if you're not in the favourites of the people in charge i think it's fair to say that you know we weren't the best planet 24 was always on on its own you know one of its one of the reasons i think we had such a great and loyal team was we were out in docklands we weren't where the traditional media companies were but that meant we didn't really play the kind of clubbable game the reason it didn't get commissioned was they weren't prepared to increase the fee of johnny vaughan which we said he should be it was as simple as that and it wasn't a very big increase but it was a kind of piece of stubbornness 
which was designed to prove a point to us in some way because we they didn't like the fact that we had created and were in charge of this big monster and so it came down to a really quite small amount of, of extra fees that we knew they should pay more because it's a really hard job presenting five days a week it's very stressful and you know so i'd say it ended pretty bitterly and they've not had the same success since and in fact you know there hasn't really been a, a morning show like that you know do, could we have the big breakfast of 2017 interestingly you know had it been still on air you know many of the things that we would have put on would have been brilliant sort of social media things i mean i think it's more a question of brand identity you know if you look at channel four it's very hard to know now what the brand is back in the glory days you know you could identify the programs which people recognized it for if there's a, a job it needs to do it needs to work out what why it's distinctive from any of the other channels a lot of what we were involved in so don't forget your toothbrush absolutely the word, absolutely the don't breakfast. forget all of those things they kind of gave yeah. it a recognition yeah. which which it doesn't have today i have no doubt it would still work and it would still be popular you know if you look at the one show the one show is the big mm. breakfast i mean that's what it is so it would probably be in a very different place to where it was back in 1999 it's interesting how some of the the things which were sort of surprising then have become so mainstream now. Well, look, glad we could get you all on to uh, to relive those stories. Uh, maybe one day it would, uh, a show like that will be back on uh, on television. But not uh, available. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it up for this week's special edition of Talking TV. My thanks to Charlie, Lisa, Paul, and Duncan. I'm Peter White, and the producers are Chica Ayres and Matt Hill from Rethink Audio. See you on the other side. 